Welcome and happy Friday. It's October 14th, 2016, and this is Travelog, the podcast of Condé Nast Traveler. I am here with, this is getting to be a, a standing rotation here, Mark Elwood, who's a contributing editor for us, and Sebastian Modak, who's an associate editor for us digitally. And we are going to talk this week about ethical travel. Kind of a big topic. There are many, many things to talk about here. But I guess the first thing that I wanted to ask you guys before we get into some of these more recent stories and some of the longer term stories that are here, what is the definition of ethical travel? Like, how do we think about this? It's a deep question. There's a quote that I think of a lot very often that's in a Dave Eggers book called You Shall Know Our Velocity. Mm -hmm. I remember reading it and it's just stuck with me ever since. I read it maybe eight years ago or something where he says, all travel is inherently selfish. And I remember kind of mulling that over, Mm -hmm. you know, as someone who does it for a living to a certain extent. And there is a truth to it. I mean, you travel for, for the most part, for self-enrichment or for your own knowledge or maybe to advance yourself, you know, professionally or for whatever other reason. But I think being a responsible traveler means that there are times when you can kind of let that go and you can travel for other people's sake or for the sake of... Maybe it is for your own enrichment, but the end result is that you're just a more aware person. You're more able to relate with people from other cultures or whatever else. And I'm not talking about like volunteerism or whatever. I'm, t- I'm talking about just your own mindset and what you can do. So I think being a responsible traveler means not just doing it, you know, to shop or to, you know, but having some other intangible Quality it does it. remind me of that episode of Friends where Phoebe tried to do something something selfless that didn't make her feel good about herself, mm. and she couldn't find a way to do that, so all we'll travel is selfish. I always think, A, ethical travel is not, I'm more a traveler than a tourist, which is one of those definitions that just makes me want to throw myself off a building, <laughs> oh, or push whoever says that off a building. <laughs> um, we but- ran a whole ad campaign. <laughs> <laughs> um, but... I always think it's the way that I treat a hotel room. I think you can make a hotel room as dirty to the extent you wouldn't mind your mom cleaning up. So it's sort of like a bit messy. So your mom would come into your teenage room and go, meh, sort out this room. But nothing that you would be ashamed or embarrassed for your mom to do to pick up. Because, you know, the chambermaids often are someone's mom. So it's, you know, and I think responsible travel, it's sort of that ethical travel. It's that same question. It, could I tell my mom about it? And I'm not setting my mother as some moral force. It's that sort of metaphorical mother. Right. Could you tell your mom you'd done that trip? And would she be like, I'm so proud of you? Right. I mean, I think, Mark, you took it to like a very, like, personal microscopic level, right? Like, because there are so many questions that roll into this, we tend to think of them, or I tend to think of them anyway, as these sort of big grand questions that I'm sure we'll get into climate change, politics. But there's also this micro level that I think we did a piece on this last year sometime that most Americans don't tip the house staff at a hotel. They don't even know that this is a thing that you should do. And many hotels have started to put a little reminder Mm -hmm. that you should do this. And people in the business like us, we know that this is something that you should do. And we know what the rules around that are. But most people don't do it. And even when they know, they think it's something they can get away with. Because it's not like at a restaurant, it's sort of less visible. It's less public than a restaurant is. But there's also this tension, I think, that exists in travel, just the impulse to travel. And this comes off, you know, we've been talking to a lot of travelers recently in some surveys that we're doing. And many people, in fact, the number one thing that people will describe as their motivation for traveling is this notion of enriching their cultural vocabulary. And so there is something 
that is kind of responsible about that. They're trying to understand other cultures and other ways of life, which seems like a broadening impulse that is a good thing for the world. And, and given that, if that's the definition, then that's a wonderful validation for travel in general. It's what we always say. The more you travel and the more you understand other cultures, the less you find them scary, intimidating, right. or easy to dismiss. Right. So ethical travel is almost travel. When you travel and you interact, you're doing something a little bit more ethical than just making a judgment at a distance. Yeah. But it's doing it armed with the knowledge and with the education in which while enriching yourself, it's not going to be at the detriment of anyone else. Yeah, and that also, there's this other impulse that is relatively common, although I would say, at least in the research that we've been doing, it's not as common as that, which is the bragging rights. So it's the self-enhancement. It's Phoebe's problem. It's like, you know, you want to get the Instagram photo, or you want to be able to check that thing off your list, or you want to be able to show off to your friends that you went to this location that's trendy or hot or whatever. And that's very much a, a factor in people's decisions about where they go as well. But don't get me wrong, I think it is totally fine if a little bit of why you go somewhere is for the boast factor. You want that name-droppy, lovely thing of, oh, you know, I was just in Mozambique. Oh, you haven't heard about Mozambique? Oh, Mozambique's the new thing. And it's okay, as long as you're not that insufferable person who is constantly bragging. A little bit of bragging rights, that's okay, because I do it, I mean, we do it, and we travel for a living. It's still great to be the first person somewhere, and honestly, you know, don't lose sleep if you if you're guilty of that, because I am all the time. Yeah, I just want to point out that I think you also may have just coined like a new philosophical paradox, the Phoebe problem. <laughs> <laughs> I really like it. As applied to travel, it's like a new Malcolm Gladwell book or something. Totally, we can totally. We're, we're, and if he if he writes that book, we we get, we we get, get a little yeah, little ten percent coin. Um, so the reason why we thought to do this this week is because TripAdvisor took a step this week. Seb, can you talk about that a little bit? What happened here? Yeah, so, you know, around the world, there are a number of kind of animal-centric attractions. You've probably seen it on your Instagram feed, people visiting South Africa or Thailand or India, and they come back with photos of them riding an elephant through the jungle or petting a lion cub um, or swimming with whale sharks off the coast of Mexico. And over the years, there's been a lot of criticism of that from animal welfare groups, from researchers and academics who work in the space. And just yesterday, actually, TripAdvisor, or two days ago, TripAdvisor announced a new change in their policy. Because TripAdvisor, since 2014, has offered bookings through their sites, as well as reviews and listings. So now they're going to be taking down any booking opportunities for places that have had some semblance of kind of animal abuse. So these are like elephant riding places in Thailand these are um, but, you know. but it's about, Seb can I ask a question because this is what I what, what troubles me a little bit what is the definition of unacceptable as an animal attraction because I always worry that when this is done it helps us feel good about ourselves because we are not exploiting animals then you realize that at the coal face, there might be facilities which are not guilty of anything particular, but because they've been tarred by this shameful brush, they end up with no funding, and that actually some of those animal attractions, which seem exploitative, are actually funding conservation work, and they're a sort of seesaw. Yeah, so how do they define, you know? I mean, I think they've partnered with, I mean, the list is like 14 different organizations, and they're, they're really combing through it, listing by listing, to see which need to be taken down. And then on top of that, they're adding a feature, sort of an educational feature. So the ones that still do exist, you're going to see on TripAdvisor starting in early 2017, let's say you're, you are visiting a lion rehabilitation center. There'll be 
a kind of small paw icon next to the listing that you can click on, and you're you're going to have a whole wealth of educational information about what they do, you know, what they're doing for conservation, what you need to be aware of when you visit. At like, you so know, this is on a place that they will allow you to book, or that they will not allow you. Places to book? that they will. They will. So they um, will. So if the point is, there is a th- there's third party verification. It's because yeah. I'm so troubled by the idea that we sort of vilify this category, right? No, for great headlines. It's true. And then yeah. the, the very, very beneficial, amazing operations end up really suffering because suddenly it's bad to do things with animals because, you know, yeah, they're all so, so they've actually got accreditation yeah. from industry. Okay. And they're being, you know, there's places that, like, there are places that are doing great things for conservation, but then there are places in Cambodia, for instance, where there have been cases of just elephants being abused, elephants dying in the middle of a job because they're so exhausted mm-hmm. and have been like just pushed to their to the edge you know lions in a safari park in Indonesia which why are there lions in Indonesia to begin with yeah that's um, puzzling being drugged <laughs> so that people could come and take photos with them you know things like that and what they're doing is they're preventing people from at least using their service to book trips to those right. places. They can't do anything about the practice itself, right? right? That's not really... I mean, the idea, I guess, is that they're going to be contributing a little less to the demand for yeah. that. Yeah. And that. But do you see, what I don't understand about this, if, if, I were, if I were an animal traveler, I'm not. I'm super urban, so you know, I'm terrified of anything green. Just give me, I want the noise of traffic, and then I calm down. But if I were an animal-based traveler, I would go to a WWF site, or I would go to Greenpeace, or I would go to one of the other RSPCA in Britain and look for their recommendations because I'd actually want sort of a kite mark on an animal experience. And I I don't know if that exists. But I think that makes you unique. I think a lot of people don't. And I think when when people are visiting these parks, I don't think they're doing it maliciously. I think they're doing it because they see like, oh, this is a fun thing to do in Thailand or like, oh, I'm in Africa. I want to pet a cheetah. But they don't know what's going on behind it. It's very surface level. And I think one of the things that this new TripAdvisor program is doing is through the kind of educational part of it mm-hmm. is they're going to be educating travelers about it. They're going to be like, why isn't this popular you know, place in Thailand on your website? And they're going to be like, click, and they're going to be like, oh, because of this. When you Maybe lived, I need to think When you lived it. in Africa, when you lived in Africa, did you see kind of crazy things happening in terms of animal operations? Did you see this I, firsthand? I did, and it, I saw it. I'm not going to name the place, but I did see it in Botswana as well, which is well known for having very kind of responsible conservation practices of kind of, you know, chained up cheetahs, for example, who maybe weren't able to live in the wild, but instead of, you know, putting them through the proper rehabilitation process, they were chained to a post and you could get very close to them and see them and they looked absolutely mangy and miserable, you know? And, you know, interacting animals with is wonderful. It's educational, it, it makes you think about conservation in new ways. But I think the point is that there are responsible ways to do it. And the point is to be educated to do it. So go, yeah, go on a safari, see a lion in the wild, but you're keeping your distance. And when you're with a qualified ranger who knows what that distance is and when to leave and when, you know, how to interact with it. And I think, so. by that point, one of my bugbears is there are periodic hysterias around shark attacks and how they're increasing. And A, most major beaches that have shark problems, most of the Australian beaches do have nets. So you are protected. They are actively protecting that. And I think the statistics, if I'm not correct, not mistaken, maybe some listeners can let me know, but I think the statistics have ticked up a little bit. But most conservationists say this is not because sharks are aggressive. It's a byproduct from the shark feeding industry. Because we are going down in cages and handing Mm. sharks pieces of meat, and they don't know our hands or legs are not other pieces of meat. So 
it's one of my when I think about animal conservation I don't know why there isn't more monitoring or maybe abolishing of us feeding sharks right and and I think piggybacking on that I talk about it in my piece but are any of you patty certified diving license so when you get your patty certification well like the first day one they're telling you before you even get in the water there's a lot of education about what you need to do when you're underwater and what you don't what what you shouldn't do and the kind of idea that they hammer over and over again is that like you're a visitor like a very alien visitor in a world that does not belong to you mm-hmm. and you're not there to interact with the creatures that are like they that's their turf you know you're there to watch and that means like you're not stepping on coral you're not hitching a ride on a passing turtle you know you're not if you see a whale shark yeah get up get sort of close to it watch it it's a magnificent creature but don't Keep grab onto its off. fin and try yeah. to hitch a ride yeah you know and i think it's like just these that education that a lot of the times goes is, is lacking and and i'm not blaming the kind of providers of the service either you're gonna if you want to make a buck off the coast of mexico and you're seeing that <laughs> tourists are flooding in to swim with whale sharks with no hold bar you know no rules you're going to provide that service because you you need to make a living too i mean i think that gets at two things you know one is that there is a version of this that's actually beneficial, right? And it's a fine line because going to visit, I don't even know if this is the right word, but like a gorilla safari in Rwanda, right? Mm-hmm. Can actually be beneficial because there's this huge sort of fight going on between oil companies and the government. And, um, you know, that land is either going to get turned into oil fields or it's going to have another purpose. And the, per- the other purpose that it might have is if we can actually build up tourism, if we can actually generate an economy out of this land... And so tourism to some of these places in Rwanda and Kenya and many other places can be a way of fending off a worse situation, a worse political and economic situation. And by the same token, you you kind of talked about this earlier. There is also an aspect to this where, again, the lines are fine, but supporting local businesses, supporting local people who are engaged in these, as long as those lines are are guard, is is supporting a local economy. And in many of these places, that's an important part of the economy. But I think if if you know if the mission of this podcast is to sort of ask the question, what is ethical travel? I think you actually pointed out something I don't think we were conscious of, which is ethical travel is educated travel. Yeah. Mm. So it's learn, investigate what you're going to do so that you know its impact, why it's... So essentially be informed and then you'll be ethical. And sometimes that getting the information is, is tough. And as an example of that, do you guys hear about the tiger temple in Thailand? No. It's pretty graphic. There's this tiger temple. It's a famous tiger temple in Thailand. Hugely popular tourist attraction. Sort of abused tigers being put through rehabilitation. But it's in a temple that's run by Buddhist monks. And so it has this, you know kind of mystical image of saffron-clad people running around taking care of tiger cubs. You know, it's like popular for a reason. And it came out in the summer. They found multiple, I think up to like 50 dead tiger cubs in a freezer and harvested organs in jars and stuff that allegedly were being sold for traditional medicine and things like that. The monks were doing it? God, I guess oh, there's that's... bad apples it everywhere. everywhere. It's still it's still <laughs> up in the air. It's being, you know, they said, oh, actually, no, it was we were just trying to prove that we weren't using the tigers for that. So whenever they died of natural causes, we would just freeze them so that you could see that we weren't harvesting them. Um, but it's now been 
shut down. The government's taking it over. The government re- has relocated the tigers. But it was, it was that kind of thing. Like, I, as a traveler to Thailand, I haven't been, but I'm not sure I would have seen the what was going on. I'm not sure I would have known if it was ethical. So maybe the takeaway there is that if you can't find the information on it or you're not sure or it's yeah. not certified in some way or hasn't if been endorsed, smell right, yeah. maybe you you don't do it. Well, and, that, and what is the don't do? Like, do you not go to the place? Is that what you don't do? Think, you don't pay an admission fee? Like, what is the thing that you should not do in a case like that? I mean, I'm not going to say that you should, like, turn around and start spreading the environmentalist gospel because of it. But I do think it's important, yeah, that you don't you don't participate in it, at least. You can take what you can tell next time your friend or relative is saying, oh, I'm going to Thailand, like... You tell them, hey, these are some things you should watch out for. But should you even mm-hmm. go to Thailand? This is the question. That's another Well, then you question. get it. Yeah, all right. So talk about that. Thailand's in the news this week. Thailand's in the news this week because the Thai king, and we're going to talk ill of the Thai royal family, which if I were in Thailand could lead <laughs> me to a lengthy jail service. But uh, the Thai king was the longest ruling monarch in the world, 70 years. He'd been on the throne since he was 18, beating even Queen Elizabeth, her royal highness of Britain. Uh, <laughs> are you required to say that? I do. I could, they're monitoring. I get monitored. <laughs> <laughs> there's like the remote there's the remote camera um he just died after being incredibly poorly he was revered by his people whether because they had to revere him or whether they felt affection but his son who is expected to take over but has just demurred and said i'm not going to become king straight away is not well liked to the degree you're able to express that so thailand is very much in the in the news and thailand is this wonderful destination amazing food beaches incredible culture one of the asian cultures that wasn't tainted by the europeans so you get this interesting sense of what would have what would vietnam have been like without the french kind of mm-hmm. thing but you know thailand has great oppression it has military hunters there's huge protests against the royal power there are oppressive anti-journalist measures as they have in turkey not quite as bad but you know is that a place you should go is it ethical to support a country that has sort of human questionable human rights issues what do you think is it it's so it's such a hard question because like sure there's it's military rule right now in thailand but the person who's selling you a delicious papaya salad from a food market has nothing to do with that. And you're punishing that person. Yeah, when like, you don't are go. you? I mean, he or she is de- has been depending her entire life for tourists to come in at, for, for that income if on, you know, at selling papaya salad on the beach in Phuket, you know? So, like, are you going to punish the people for the transgressions of their politics and, and yet, their you political know, leaders? I, I, mean, I agree. You see, I think that's a good question because I think if you're in a dictatorship like Myanmar, for example, you wouldn't want to punish the people because they did not have agency in be, in their country being requisitioned by this oppressive regime. But, for example, with the Philippines right now, where we have oh, a president who is, bragging ca- about. who is careening through international diplomacy and wrecking the Philippines' international relationships, relationships, not to mention allowing mob murder on the street, impromptu summary Allowing, murder. I think encouraging. encouraging. Bragging about it. Yeah. He was elected with a huge majority. So mm. if he's a democratically elected leader whose moves you do not agree with, is it more ethical not to support that versus, say, a country where the everyday people are probably suffering too? Well, it's a great question that that hits close to home for us <laughs> this year, right? Of like, yeah, you know, I think um, depending on what happens on November, where we are on November 9th, I think 
you know, we've already seen this in the U.S. where other countries have issued, you know, warnings about traveling to the United mm-hmm. States this year. And we could be in a similar position where do you punish New York City if if, if Donald President Trump, Trump is, you know, President Trump, yeah, does France. whatever it is that he's likely to do. I do always worry because I think when you marginalize people in a country and take money away from them, poor people turn to more extremism. It's just like when there are disaster zones, you should go there and spend money because they right. need your money. You should adjust your expectations when you turn up after a tsunami. But you should go. You're not being a, a sort of a, a funeral chaser. You're not an ambulance chaser, a travel ambulance chaser. You're actually giving them what they need, which is money to get back on their feet. But I am always, I'm really, I, there are regimes that I really struggle with in terms of Myanmar's one of them, where I just think, I know that apparently the money I will spend there will not go to the government. There are lots of assurances. I just don't believe it. Well, what about, I mean, this is another interesting one, getting kind of more interesting all the time, which is Cuba. And and as a European, right, like mm. you have a different perspective yep. on this. The United States sort of took a national perspective on this. We were banned from traveling there, except for specific purposes. But Europeans weren't. And you did know that, you know, or you know, it's difficult to know exactly what happened in Cuba. But you could rest assured that a lot of whatever you spent there, unless it was on the black market, was going to the government. How did you think through that? You've been there. Right? I haven't. I haven't been because I have a. I'm a U.S. resident, so I fell okay. under the U.S. But you know many. You I know many, many people. Absolutely, and you know my my European friends have been to Cuba on mass. I mean, yeah. almost everyone has. I mean, been. my wife has been to Cuba. So, you know, <laughs> you're Italian, Italian. Wife. yeah. But I would think about Cuba. I would have much less problem with somewhere like Cuba, because I think Cuba. America's vilification of Cuba was so out of step with anyone else in the world for so many cultural reasons. I understand why, but Cuba would give me far fewer misgivings because the rest of the world by the 1990s was not isolating it as a pariah. So I think groupthink helps there. And I I think for me also a kind of guiding principle is that like, I mean, I, I haven't been to Iran I, it's on my list. Um, Me too. But I know people who have, and Americans who have, and they've come back saying that the people they met there were n- nothing but gracious and welcoming and friendly. And that's part of what we were talking about in terms of education as well, and being a responsible traveler through education is knowing more about the country than what you're reading in the headlines. I mean, if you if all your understanding is that this is a pariah state that we've, you know, that oppresses and this is why we've cut it out, you're not really understanding anything about the people there. You're not, you know. No, I have to say, I'll give a shout out. My friend Rob Jackson, who travels more than anyone I know who doesn't work in travel, took a, and listens to the, to the podcast. Hello, Rob. Went to Iran a few months ago and a lot of our friends in New York were very concerned about him going. And his stories, he said it was one of the most spectacular trips he's ever taken. And I don't think he had worries about supporting a regime. I think he felt he was acting as an ambassador, yeah, essentially, because the ordinary Iranians he met in Tehran, he only went to Tehran, so he obviously went to the most historically cosmopolitan part of Iran, were asking about America, and they said, does everyone in America think we hate them? Because we don't hate them. Yes, exactly. Like, we, we hate some of the things. We don't understand why you guys do X. Yeah, so I, I had the same experience multiple times, especially in Indonesia, where I was as like a teenager, and 2003 came along when, you know, Iraq started and everything that came afterwards. 
And there was a lot of anti-American sentiment in Indonesia. You could see it in the graffiti sprayed mm -hmm. around town. You know, you could hear it and what people were saying. But there was a nuance there as well. When I was talking to people, they'd say, oh, you're, you're an American citizen. No, we have nothing against you. We have something against your government. In the same way as you could say, you know, like the U.S. has something against certain governments. Mm -hmm. But that's not saying that it has any reflection of the people who are there. Well, but again, like, do you, you know, and just backing that out, like, do you look at, and this is very difficult to assess as well, but do you look at how much popular support there was for a <laughs> do particular... You a, do you need an election rating? Right, I mean, of, like... But there's so much else that goes into why that popular support existed, you know? It's like not just like they liked this dictator so they put him into power there were so many other social forces at work that like we're not going to understand well so where do you is there a line that you ever draw like is myanmar the line is like i would ask about well, i you think myanmar is a very different country now than it was even a year sure ago, so. of course sure. but it's still i mean it's still an outlier in terms yeah. of oppressiveness but again you know if i think about this i have some turkish friends visiting from istanbul this week and listening to the stories of what's happening even in istanbul which is the bubble of internationalism was so concerning especially as a journalist where in turkey this country which has been incessantly stuck in an eu application process <laughs> is imprisoning journalists at will oh yeah foreign journalists as well i don't know but I, you know, I actually, joking aside, I think it, it gave me great pause about thinking about wanting to spend my money in Turkey. But then I'm the bad guy. Okay, but then well, let's back that out, right? What about Russia? What about China? Yeah. Right? Which routinely imprison journalists I, and, and occasionally bump them off, maybe or not. I wouldn't rush to Russia at the moment. I, my last trip to Russia was on behalf of Condé Traveler to Sochi so I could do some Today Show segments. That was a great privilege to see an unusual part of Russia, having been to Moscow, St. Petersburg. Fascinating. Would I hesitate to go to Russia at the moment? Yes, I think I would. See, I think I draw the line further. I think I draw the line at North Korea. If I'm going on a government-sponsored... There's only one so line for you. Yes. You, mean, you have I think, fewer morals or, or than maybe, I do. Or maybe like Turkmenistan But what about this notion something? of ambassadorship? So here's the, that's the thing. I, I don't think I could be one because I would be on a government-sanctioned tour that's, that's that true. I would pay the government for. I wouldn't interact with anyone because they'd make sure that You'd I would You'd be wouldn't. a propaganda tool yeah. rather than um, an ambassador. They would take me, you know... Unless I've, you I've were Dennis Rodman. Unless was he was totally genuine. <laughs> I feel like I could go to Iran and interact with people on the ground and spend my money on the ground, even if it is cash economy, black market that's not being taken by the government. I could do the same thing in China. I could do the same thing in Russia. I couldn't do the same thing in North Korea. Um, so I think that is where I draw the line. Because and I that think is just a, that's literally Gen me Gen Sebastian, I think you make a really, I think you, again, I think you've helped us really drill that down, where it is, if you can act as an ambassador in some way, you can probably justify the idea of visiting because you can put your best face forward, you can interact. But if you are precluded from being that and by visiting, you're just a flunky for whatever the state line is, then no. So that yeah. North Korea, but if you can go to Tehran and talk to people and be like, I don't, we, we don't hate, we, we don't hate you meal. at governments, let's, let's have dinner, let's yeah. talk. That is actually very productive yeah. because you're being an ambassador rather other than a tool. It's yeah. almost even harder for you as an American, although democracies are messy, but, you know, when you're in a dictatorship, if you're visiting a dictatorship, you know, you have more accountability as the citizen of a democracy, mm -hmm. I suppose, for whatever the government policy is. I mean, obviously, we cannot control everything, but... But in a dictatorship, you can't really hold that against much of the population right. if it's maintained by military rule, right? Like, those people on the ground, 
may or may not be endorsers of, I mean, look at North Korea. That's a great example. Like, who the hell knows how much endorsement But, but I is. would be curious if we have any listeners who've been to North Korea. I didn't, we haven't. I and I'd no. be curious if anyone is listening and has been, whether they can tell us, was the experience as constrained as we perceive it to be? Right. Or has anyone been anywhere where they felt very much like, they couldn't act as an ambassador, where they felt monitored. Um, I have heard stories in Iran, for example, mm-hmm. outside Tehran, that you will be accompanied by a helpful guide at all times. <laughs> helpful guide. I like that. Yeah. 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 No, it's true. Yeah. So, you know, I, I'm curious if any, if, any, if any listeners have had those experiences, please do share them with us, because I think that's a very interesting, thorny question that there's yeah. no real absolute answer to. Yeah. Let me ask about a different kind of travel, Mark, that you wrote about for us. Mm-hmm. And I don't even know quite what to call it. You called it slum tourism. It has it? Its, it has its own name, right? We are it's- allowed to call it slum tourism. Most of the most of the people who operate within the field call it slum tourism. I was fascinated that one walking tour in London, which essentially looks at the overlooked parts of London, a lot of homeless London, was very unhappy at the idea that we would include them in slum tourism. And I thought that was really, really stupid, to be honest, because um, actually what slum tourism is about is about spotlighting the parts of a city that are often not on a mainstream itinerary. And this tour in London was very much about look look down, not not across, look at the, the forgotten bits of London. But slum tourism is the favela trips. It's the slums in Delhi, in Bombay. The township it's tour. the township tours. But it's also the disaster zone tours. Yes. Like, well, like- there are two kinds of tourism. There is disaster chasing, ambulance chasing tourism and slum tourism. One of them is essentially ghoulish death loving. And the other is, I don't want to go to a disaster zone, but I want to see perhaps the tougher side of life. Well, and I see that, but I also see like the post-Katrina tourism in New Orleans but that, that you wrote both, about, right? which is a which is a bit of both, right? Like but Lord but then at that particular Lord, moment, I like, mean, if you went to you know if you went to New Orleans at any time in that period, like right. that was New Orleans at its absolute worst, yeah. right? And I don't mean worse in terms of the people; I just mean they were down and down. out, and they really were. There was a really struggling, and yeah. I think the other thing that comes to mind is. And this is a little bit different, but, you know, Haiti after mm-hmm. the earthquake, Absolutely. you know, it's which is different than Italy after the earthquake. Right. Like the, it is. But there's emerging when when I was when I was in New Orleans and I went to this art biennial, which appeared Prospect One, which appeared after Katrina, was one of the first big things the city played host to. And I was in the Lower Ninth World where there were significant numbers of site specific pieces. And I was talking to one of the local people who's just watching, gawping at these busloads of people kind of trekking around for the opening. And I said to her, you know, what do you think? And she's like, you know, it's nice to have people. People come and see something here that isn't isn't just looking at how bad it is. Yeah. Because I, as an outsider, and especially as a white outsider in a largely black neighborhood, I felt very uncomfortable about how I would be perceived. Mm-hmm. And it was nice to be reminded. She essentially was like, look, we, you know, people come and see how bad life is here. It's so great. There's actually something else to look at. Yeah. yeah. And... I, you know, the slum tourism, what I did think is interesting, a lot of those slum tours, you know, you can check how they're operated, whether they're whether they plow money back into the communities. And I think there's something very sad about dismissing out of hand the idea of doing one. I will say, having visited Rio after I wrote that story, I would have pause about going to on a Rio favela tour because the tougher parts of Rio I found quite intimidating. So for your own personal safety, you would have you would have. I, 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 I would I would also say that's been going on for a while, and it doesn't seem to be eliminating the favelas. You know, it's I not. Mean, it I mean, it's it's and essentially you're not. You, also, this is the challenge about things like visiting a favela. 
in all likelihood, in order for a tour to operate in an area of the city which is not controlled by the police... But they're, by paying s- off gangs. they're paying yeah. off gangs. Yeah. So you are are you in some way supporting an illegal ecosystem? Probably. But are you pragmatically, are you helping keep food on the table in those poor people's houses? Probably that too. Yeah. Yeah. See, I I don't know. I mean you you reported on it, so like you have more information on it than I do. But I just I do have a problem with even just kind of the optics of it. The gawking. Yeah. The like drive in with a bus, come out of that bus with 12, 13, 14 other people, walk through, peer into people's homes who know you're coming, but like, you know, have set it up as such. Um, I mean, Look, I, it's not I, a, here's, no, okay, but hang well, on. Let, let me finish. Okay, yeah. I, I have, I've had two. I think that may be the first let me finish ever <laughs> on this podcast. Well, I want to complete the, the thought. No, that's because fine. I, so I had two kind of very like back-to-back experiences in Soweto, in Joburg, you know, which is, historic and my first introduction to it this all happened over the course of I'm one I'm going to week. assume this is after apartheid because you are a younger person and <laughs> post apartheid yes. yes the first time was on a guided like historical tour of Soweto so it wasn't even it wasn't like one of the cultural trips it was like look at how they live it was more like just because it was a historic neighborhood in the fight against apartheid so we went in and I was just like hugely uncomfortable the whole time and it wasn't like we were doing anything particularly invasive but like i said just the vibe the optics of it was very off-putting then the next day i was at some show somewhere in Joburg, and i met this guy and we were talking and he's like i was where you're from he's like i'm from soweto and i was like cool i was there today um he's like come tomorrow like we'll have lunch so he took me in for lunch he was like a you know south african rapper from soweto and it was just like a completely different experience. I was walking down the same streets. I was seeing the same restaurants. I was going, you know, into the same homes, but it was like a totally other world. I was, I was comfortable. I was relaxed. I was interacting rather than like being on the other side of a screen, you know? Mm. Um, well, rather than it being a human safari, I mean, I remember someone yeah. was offering me a human safari, which felt deeply uncomfortable That's, on so many that, levels. That is crazy. Were we supposed That's, to hunt them? Were we in jeeps and they were running around? Oh, God. But, but the, the challenge is, you know, there Terrible. is, in, in, in South Africa, there is the Amoya Shantytown Hotel, which allows you to spend a night in a, a sort of favela-esque homestead where you can live comfortably while you know, echoing their way of life, which obviously is so deeply uncomfortable and sort of yeah. sounds parodic. But what I would say, Zerb, is that, like, I think that the way that you can participate in slum tourism ethically and respectfully is two things. You walk, so you're at human level and human height, and you are not alien creatures appearing, and no photographs. Mm-hmm. And I think if you do... If you operate that way, where you're neither making sure you have this kind of charming Instagram picture of, mm. you know, delicate poverty, right. and you are at a level to be able to interact with people, I think you're then in no way liable to the accusation yeah. that you're just sort of... And maybe my sort of discomfort with it is completely unfounded, because if you are finding the right tour that is involving the local economy and bringing local people in and taking you to a local artisan's shop and all of that... It's probably a, is doing some a great deal of benefit to the neighborhood. I'm um, still gonna. I I mean yes, and I again this is why these lines are quite fine. But I I can remember being in 
Chiapas in a very poor town, Semon Tamula, which is a very poor town in uh, in the highlands. And, uh, you know, I went on a tour that was very, very local, very locally operated, very locally you sort of run. This is a place where the Mayan culture was very much still a part of daily life. And so we, we went touring through sort of like, you know, how the locals lived, how they worked, what they made. And there were one of the things that they made were textiles. And I can remember going to watching a couple of women actually do work the looms that they had. And, uh, you know, I mean, on the one hand, I knew that they were getting a piece of the action from the money that we had paid the tour guide, which was not that much to begin with, but whatever. But also there was this pageantry to it that it felt like what they were doing was as much theater for the gringos as anything else. And I, you well, know, good for them. I mean, I guess it's, I, you know, I don't, I, I don't know. To me, it felt like disruptive and it felt you know, uncomfortable. Um, But perhaps that is, perhaps you're right. And that's just me being a gringo. And like, you know, I was actually doing more good than harm. I I don't, it's hard, it's, it's difficult. But I think that, you know, given that this is one of the more impoverished parts of Mexico, and, you know, this is the place where the, the rebellion happened in 1994, I, was I doing anything to really make that well, just, situation better? I feel like it better. comes down to, like, if we are talking about what makes you a responsible traveler, I don't think we're going to say that going on one of these tours is inherently irresponsible, right? I don't think we're saying that. I, don't, I, think, I think it depends on the tour. I think it depends on how it's run. I think it depends on a lot of different things. But I think it also comes down to, like, your own feelings on it. Like, I it sounds like, Brad, you and I are in agreement that, like, I would never do it. I'll say that right now. I would never do it. I'm not saying like, oh, I'll like look danger in the eye and go right in, but like I would much rather just go. Meet someone and go or go with friends and and like cuz I've found in my experience and I'm saying this from a position of privilege as a male in a foreign place, but like I'll just go and I'll figure it out and I'll have a much more real time, I feel like. I think I would rather but, and perhaps again this is me, but like I'd rather go eat at the restaurant and like yeah. have a more exchange like have a sort of exchange of goods and services that is more of a, a sort of standard. But if economy. you don't speak the language so I think that's I think that's a lovely idea, Seb, but I think you you're right. You you have an an ability as a man to have a slight force field around you yeah. that not every traveller does. I also think it's it's easy to say, I'd like to go with friends. Well, what if you don't have friends in that area? What if yeah. you don't speak the language? You can't commun- You need someone to act as your proxy between those two people. So maybe you should go to an organized trip. And if you check where the money goes to, and there's an operation in Delhi, for example, where the tours subsidize a school for orphan boys. So it's essentially the tours operate to provide education for kids from that slum so that they have opportunities. I'd much rather do that because to me, that's a win-win. I get someone who can talk to the uh, slum dwellers, who can tell me what's going on. I have someone to steer me through and keep me safe. And I know my money is going somewhere productive. So I think it's great if, sure, if I had a friend who lived in the city and could be like, I'll take you there. But I don't think we're always that lucky. Yeah, I agree. Let me ask about a different you know, sort of ethics, which is climate change. We've got a piece on the site that is basically 10 places you should go before climate change makes them unvisitable. You know, and I think it's not too hard to think of where those are. You know, the Arctic, I think, is for sure one of those, the Galapagos, places like this. And I guess the question that I would ask is, number one, what do you guys think about this kind of tourism? Is it helpful or hurtful? 
And number two, are there versions of that that are more palatable than less My palatable? least favorite thing to ever see in a hotel, and I normally throw it in the bin, is a little sign saying, we love the environment. If you want to use your towels, put them on the thing. And I call down to reception and I say, I want fresh towels every day. I just want to know. I want my sheets changed every single day. Do you do that in California? I, do you know, that's strange you should ask that, Brad. I was in one of my favorite hotels in L.A., and this probably says more about me than them, but the sign for changing your sheets, you had to leave it on the bed, and either it said, yes, you know, I care about climate change, don't change the sheets, or yes, I know there's a drought in California, but change the sheets anyway. And sort of passive-aggressive guilt-tripping doesn't work on I me. Mean, I'll, I'll agree with you that that is a bad approach from that hotel, but I'm going to disagree and say that, like... I think we have to do our part. But again, if and I that, believed, that is a small if, part. If I believed, if an I, if any hotelier had ever told me that was truly for environmental reasons, I don't care what the reason is. It's the effect, though. If any hotelier had told me we have LEED certification on the hotel, we recycle everything, we don't give paper bills, we don't, you know, there are there are chains. What about are, one hotels? There are cha- there are chains that have made this their reason to believe their USP. Right. That's a very different value proposition because you are embracing an ecosystem of eco-awareness. If you're a regular hotel and you want to cut your laundry budgets and the way you think you can get away with it is, oh, don't change the sheets, but you give me an envelope and my bill in triplicate when I check out, cut the envelope out and wash my sheets. But the, and again, I'm, I'm or curious. give me ten dollars off that night if I, I go, like been, if I sleep in the dirty sheets because I do that at home. I feel like I've been seeing this in Europe longer than I've been seeing it here. Right, like the note, they're generally more genteel than what you described. <laughs> they, you know, in, in Italy, they would they would say like, "Oh, gentle Preferably. client, <laughs> gentile cliente." You know, like please, please. But I've seen that for. 10, 15 years. Yeah, but the issue the issue I have about travel being held so culpable, because I think travel is sort of the bread and circuses of climate change. I think travel is the easy thing to blame, and it gets everyone frothy at the mouth because, oh, that wastefulness of those hotels laundering so many sheets, and the wastefulness of air travel. It absolutely contributes to climate change, which I believe is 100% real. And we all should do our part. But I think travel is held unfairly culpable and is blamed and vilified because it's easier. As a European, I grew up being very resource aware in my day-to-day life. So in Britain, for example, recently, they introduced a charge if you get a plastic bag from a store. Yeah. So you bring your own bag because plastic bags are really terrible for the environment way worse than washing the sheets. So I take a... a Although, again, I would come back to in California at this moment in Mm -hmm. time, a hotel in New York putting a sign like that. And again, we'll let the standards cleverness, you know, kind of be, you know, some people might like that. Some people don't like that. But a hotel in California making that kind of plea right now versus a hotel in New York making that kind of plea, to me, there's a different weight to it. Because in California, there's a very serious situation. And, and then, charge me, then charge me a surcharge. Ask me at check-in. But what is that? how does that help anything? Ask me at check-in, do I want to pay extra to have my sheets laundered? And I will say yes. I mean, I, I don't think that's a bad idea. I think that's like an incentive yes. issue. I think, it, I think that's a good free market way of doing it. But shaming people is also, I'm not sure that I'm against the shaming. Uh, I, I just you know. think, I think there's something, I think I disagree that like 
travel is given a disproportionate amount of flack for climate change. I think it is given flack, but I think it's for a good reason. I think there's something that comes with travel that you have the means to travel, and it's the same way that like you can walk around certain parts of New York in the summer and you see these apartments with their windows open and their AC blaring because they can, you know, because they're not worried about the costs of it. And it's the same thing. It's like there was this great photo from a couple of years ago, great, also depressing photo from a couple of years ago at the Davos conference, which mm. the theme of the conference was climate change. Oh, God. And it was just a photo of the airport and it was one private Learjet yeah. after another. Yeah. All these people had <laughs> like come in. The celebrities who take a private jet <laughs> right. to an environmental conference. Yeah, yes. it's just, just, I think that but, is but the I, issue with travel. I think it's I, like, it's not going to stop me from traveling, and I'm guilty of it. And I, you know, I so do would think you turn it. down an upgrade to business because it's worse no. for the environment? No, I wouldn't. Me Why either. is an upgrade to business worse for the environment? Because same plane, but empty space, seat. space, and so like, so I have stats. A first class seat. By taking a first class seat, you're essentially, if you actually break down the math of it, your carbon footprint for that flight is nine times more than if. You're and your enjoyment seat. is a thousand <laughs> times higher. And yeah, but I'd what is rather... an existential crisis we're talking about? I mean, but like I'm saying, I, I would take the upgrade, of course. Okay, but wait a minute. But, but then there's things I'll, <clears throat> I'll do to try my best to contribute. Wait, like... wait, because <laughs> you did not, pay, you are not supporting the first class economy by taking the upgrade, right? Buying the ticket is a different story, right? Taking the upgrade, you didn't pay an extra cent for that. You filled an empty seat, and you are not encouraging the economy that creates mm. first class. I would say. Buying the first-class ticket, you are then creating an economy that justifies the creation of the first-class space. What you're looking for, the outcome that you're looking for is take up less space, put more people on the plane, decrease the, the individual carbon footprint of every passenger, right? You're also decreasing margins for the airlines to the point where they may no longer be able to operate, and so therefore there may not be planes anymore. Mm -hmm. But Nonetheless, like you haven't increased. Look, I mean, some airlines, United offers a carbon offset program. I'm just, it, it is, I think, for example, stores that keep their doors open while air conditioning is a way bigger problem than my air travel. So all of Las Vegas. But the idea yeah. that in a hot, in a hot, and it happens in New York in the summer, you have these doors yeah. spilling. That, so things like that. And I, I just, I, I feel very, very strongly that air travel especially is given a hard time. And I think, yes, okay. we have to be responsible. But I love flying in the front of the bus. And I don't feel guilty about it because I make other efforts. And that's going to be my guilt. It's like, it's like you're guilty. You know, you eat a bowl of French fries and then for the rest of the week you live on ramen. That's okay. Okay, so what's but like what's the takeaway for travelers? I mean, is a carbon offset gonna do it? Probably not. It'll still, make you feel I better about yourself. I still want to know about the the, the cruise to view the glaciers in the Arctic before they go away. Are you helping or are you hurting? Depends whether a proportion of that cruise's costs are, are used to defray the impact on the Arctic. So whether there's a pro-social component or it's completely for profit. Or if someone's going to see it and say, I can't believe this is on its way out. I'm going to change my life and suddenly in See my Instagram that... post of the disappearing glacier and say, <laughs> oh, my God, you've changed my life. I mean, you never I am know. now devoting my... I will never fly first class again. But I remember seeing the Great Barrier Reef when I was seven, eight, snorkeling over the Great Barrier Reef. I still remember it like it was a year ago. 
and now 90, 91% of it is experiencing coral bleaching. It's and again, white don't, don't, and get me, don't get me wrong. You know, I think it's very important we make climate adjustment efforts, 100%. And as a European, I grew up, it was one of the biggest adjustments when I moved to America two decades ago, that it was less front of mind at that time. So I agree with you. This is not that. But I disagree so intensely that travel is the big place to focus. And honestly... I go to a hotel to have clean sheets every night because I don't get that at home. It's one of the true pleasures. I don't want to sleep in last night's sheets. I do that in my real life. Hotels are fantasy, and I would rather do other things to be environmentally responsible. I mean, I, I, I don't like I said, I don't think it's the worst. I mean, I think statistics would say the same thing, that it's not the greatest emitter of CO2. Like, let's put our energy behind renewable energy before we do, you know. But there are things you can do, and I think... There are things that the institution itself, travel as a, you know as an industry, is doing as well. There's now two fully solar-powered airports in the world. One in, one just opened this week, right? Yeah. So what there, the first one was in Cochin in India, and the next one just opened in South Africa. Um, it's completely powered by its own grid. You know, just you have all this empty space around airports. Just fill it with solar panels. It's it's great. Um, there's things that any traveler can do, like. Maybe you don't need to fly from New York to Boston. Maybe you don't need to contribute to that route. Maybe you can take a train. You know, maybe you can take a bus. Um, and I still want clean sheets. I still feel like, but I, I want clean sheets every day. And I actually make a point of using every towel in the bathroom just to make sure they'll all get changed. It's one of my. You go around and you just make sure that you get each of them damp, I just, and then put I each think, of them on the floor. I think that's a. I think, I that's, think that's an that's, issue. That's. I think yeah. You got. You should. You should examine that. It's so you good because I want clean. That. I want every towel to be clean. I mean, I do feel like I don't feel like you get the solar airports until there's a mindset change and. And I think the mindset change is a pervasive thing, and I think it expresses itself across the continuum. So I'm glad that the hotels are trying to shame me into not using. And I do agree with you. I would rather that they just charge me more for it. And that makes it an economic decision. It's cleaner. It sort of puts the penalty where the penalty belongs. And the offsets are a great thing in that regard. But I still think that until you get people really aware of it, and, and there are better and worse ways to make people aware of it, but I think that you don't get the steps that actually make a meaningful difference until people absorb it. So maybe pick- that's great. Maybe that's what you need. You need just to hammer them over the head. Like, I'm sorry, I don't care if it, you know, momentarily Honestly, pisses nothing, you off to read a passive-aggressive will sign. Make me, nothing will make me do anything other than expect clean sheets and clean towels every that's fine. single day. But maybe day. someone nothing. will go in there one day and see that and be like, you know what, you're right. Like, oh, I I've totally a, done that. I can use a towel for two it days. Completely, like, it completely like made me more conscious of it, particularly when I was in California recently. I would be curious if any listeners have come across hotels that offer rebates if you do recycle. So I'd be very, if you're telling me I get 10 bucks off the room, if I help you save money and save the environment, because again, let's remember- They're saving money. They're yeah. saving money, and every hotelier I've talked about, these kind of programs, out of the left side of their mouth says, oh, you know, it's really about kind of keeping the operating costs down. Uh, and the environmental stuff is kind of how we, how we position it. If anyone has come across hotels where you are financially incentivized one way or the other. I'd love to hear about it because yeah. I think that's a very clever yeah. way. Well, yeah. I, I think maybe alternate incentives is the way to go then. It's the same reason like this airport in South Africa went solar was because in a 90% coal-powered country, 
they were having rolling blackouts over and over again. With amazing weather the that they're wasting the right. opportunity. Right. I mean, right. we can't deal with this anymore. So let's just power ourselves with a field of solar panels. Right. And now they haven't had a single power cut. Right. So it's like, and they didn't necessarily do it for environmental reasons, but the end result is a net positive for all of us. And we can live on this planet for a couple of years more. I'm but the other, thing, the other thing that I think that that liberates, that the economic incentives or disincentives liberate you to do is be conscious about it and make your make a decision that is an informed decision which is back again to what you were saying ethical travel is educated travel whatever that consists of knowing what the consequences Mm -hmm. are grappling with those consequences and making a decision within that matrix that's the best decision that you can make all right that's a great place for us to end don't forget to subscribe to the podcast we are on itunes and soundcloud please leave us a review leave us a comment We would love to hear from you. Uh, We would love to hear what you'd like for us to cover. We'd love to hear what you've loved about it, what you haven't loved about it. You can comment on Mark's shirt if you want to. Uh, We'd love to hear about that. And visit us at cntraveler.com where you can find many fine articles about these very topics. We are at Condé Nast Traveler on Facebook and YouTube and CN Traveler on Instagram, Twitter, and Snapchat. Please tweet at us there. We do love getting that feedback. Thank you to Joyce, who tweeted in response to last week's uh, podcast when we asked the question, why is San Francisco's weather she better it. in September? Whoa. October? We promised to give the answer did on you, air. Did you get a dissertation? She, no. no, we got a beautifully tweet. It's uh, called the vacuum effect. Mm. And what happens is that in the summer, the Central Valley and Central California gets very, very hot, and it creates a vacuum that pulls the cold air off the ocean and creates the fog in San Francisco that's affected by the mountains and by the heights that are there. And then when the fall comes, and she also helped us out with this, when the fall comes, there's an evening of the temperature, and that's what pushes it back out and creates that beautiful fall weather in San Francisco. So we got our answer that we were looking for. And that's thank you to you listeners. Thank you to Joyce. That was so great because you've answered a question I've left unanswered for more than a decade. Yes. Vacuum effect. Vacuum Ah. vacuum effect, California. (laughs) So tweet at us and send us feedback and send us answers to the questions that we've asked here. Mark's asked a bunch of questions on this one. Um, Please tell us. Review us on iTunes. And Mark, where can people find you? You can tweet at me as Joyce did at Mark J. Elwood, which is Mark with a K and Elwood with two L's on Twitter. And I'm at Seb Modak on everything. And I'm at Bradrick. And that's it. Have a great weekend, everyone. Thanks for stopping by.